TBO podcast gibisindanawa. You're listening to a TBO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on the art of sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. Anin, Chris and Dishnikas, Mishisagig and Nishnabe Ndao, Pemadushkideang and Dunjaba, Nogodjawang Deda. I'm Chris Beaver, and from TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. The following podcast mentions residential schools. The Indian Residential School Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. Call 1-800-721-0066. Please take care while listening. The myth of the savage Indian was used as a tool to erase the personhood of indigenous people. European monarchs using the doctrine of discovery declared North America was vacant and ready for the taking, and that the continent was only inhabited by savages, despite being home to over 60 million people at the time, one-fifth of the human population. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yada, 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 Columbus is a hero of the story for discovering the new world. And as you know, every good story needs a villain. This is how the story of the savage Indian was born. It's an enduring tale that has captured the settler imagination for centuries. While the savage Indian remains the boogeyman of the pre-colonial past, I feel that my history as an Indigenous person has been shaped by it. I grew up on a Canadian Indian reserve in Ontario. My Mississauga ancestors were disenfranchised by an influx of settlers after the American Revolutionary War ended in 1783. Eventually, we were taken to live on a small island with British Methodist missionaries. Then, we were relocated to Alderville First Nation, where we've been for 180 years. We were early targets of what would eventually become the assimilation policies of the Canadian church and state. I'm talking about the Indian Act a collection of racist government policies used to force the assimilation of Indigenous peoples into Canadian culture. The Indian Act was passed in 1876 with help from the 529-year-old story of the savage Indian. It became a foundational justification for things like reserves, residential schools, and the banning of Indigenous culture until the mid to late 20th century. Kill the Indian and save the man was the rationale. Indigenous cultural expression had to go underground to survive. As a result, many Canadians believed that Indigenous cultures simply ceased to be. This was the Canada acclaimed Anishinaabe artist Norval Morisot was born into. Here's Wanda Nanabush, Anishinaabe Kwe from Beausoleil First Nation and curator of Indigenous art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. We had a long-standing practice of hiding our culture from the mainstream world because of the fact that it was banned and we didn't want to be caught, so it went underground. And so more so broke that taboo by painting our stories 
and painting some of our ceremonial drawings and histories onto canvas and board. At first, people were very afraid of that. Many times people come up to me and say, Norval, I thank you very much for healing me. I thank you very much for helping me. I thank you very much for doing this. I have never seen those people. What did it? The painting. For Norval Morisot, art was spiritual. He believed art was healing, that art had power. He believed in its ability to express stories and ideas across cultural divides. And he used that power to assert his indigenous point of view. He used his art to defy stereotypes and tell important stories. Many considered him to be a paradox. He was a Catholic indigenous shaman who critiqued colonialism and enjoyed high tea. Morisot brought together a unique blend of influences to create his own visual language. Some call it the Woodland School, a contemporary adaptation of indigenous ways of knowing and seeing the world. His style has become synonymous with indigenous art in Canada. Morisot is considered by many to be the Mishomis, or grandfather of contemporary indigenous art, because before Morisot, there simply was no such thing. He changed that. He opened the door. Through his work, indigenous art began to move from the museums to the galleries, from artifact to art. Norval Morisot was an Anishinaabe artist who was born in 1931 in Port Arthur, Ontario, now known as Thunder Bay. His mother was Grace Teresa Nanakonagos, and his father was Abel Morisot. He was oldest of five children. In keeping with Anishinaabe tradition, he was sent to Sandy Lake Reserve to live with his maternal grandparents. His grandmother was a deeply devout Catholic. His grandfather was a respected shaman who worked as a healer and a keeper of Anishinaabe culture in the Medouin an Anishinaabe spiritual tradition. Morisot's paradoxical identity was no doubt shaped by this unique blend of influences. He never had any kind of art training. That's Carmen Robertson, a Scots Lakota scholar and the Canada Research Chair in North American Indigenous Art, History and Visual Culture at Carleton University. She's currently leading the Morisot Project, a comprehensive investigation of his life and work from 1955 to 1985, when he produced many of his best-known works. As Robertson was saying, Morisot had no formal training. That was all his own ways of seeing, working with his grandfather, who was high up in the Medewin Lodge, and going out with him and seeing visual images of rock art, things like that, and learning Indigenous ways of knowing. And those became the basis from which he built his art career out of. At the age of six, Morisot was sent to St. Joseph's Indian Residential School. He stayed there for four years, and like so many others, he was abused and emotionally scarred by the experience. He was forbidden to speak his language and taught that his own culture was inferior to the white man's. But despite this coercion, he had the courage to stay true to himself. He managed to hold on to his culture, which allowed him to go on to become a prolific and powerful artist. In fact, staying true to himself was one of the through lines of his life. It's what made him Norval Morisot. I think the fact that he was raised by a shaman 
the fact that he lived in northern Ontario, so it was a bit more isolated, the fact that he only went to residential school for four years, so it wasn't his entire childhood. I think all of those things played a factor in his ability to hold on to that knowledge and, and bring that knowledge forward. And in some ways, he had a hard life. And then at the same time, he had a deep gift that was given to him by his grandparents. At the age of 10, Morisot returned home from residential school. He wasn't playful like the other kids in his community. He spent most of his time either drawing alone or shadowing his elders. In his teen years, he would spend a lot of time alone in the bush, hunting, fishing, and trapping. When Morisot was 19, he became very sick. He had pain in his chest, nosebleeds. Doctors didn't know what was wrong. Morisot thought he was going to die. His mother got him a good medicine woman who gave him Anishinaabe medicines and performed healing ceremonies. To quote Morisot, then she did something special, the highest sort of power that can be given to anyone that is sick, and that is to give him a new name, a powerful new name. That's when Morisot became the Copper Thunderbird. Morisot always signed his work as the Copper Thunderbird in Cree syllabics, which he learned from his former wife, Harriet Kakagemic. He kept experimenting as an artist, but he had a family to support. So he took a job working in a gold mine in Red Lake, Ontario. That's where Morisot met Dr. Joseph Weinstein and his wife, Esther. They were art enthusiasts and recognized Morisot's talent and wanted to support him. They gave him art supplies, showed him books about European masters, and eventually introduced him to the right people. Word started to spread, and on September 23, 1962, Morisot got his big break. Remember his name. It's Norval Morisot a 31-year-old Ojibwe painter whose works were publicly displayed for the first time last week. The Toronto art world responded warmly to the showing. They liked what they saw and snapped up all of his 35 pictures for a total of $4,000. Overnight, Norval Morisot, the shy, mystical artist, had found the acceptance he always knew would be his. His oil-on-paper paintings depict the history and religion of his people, and in all the works, are the strong medicine symbols given to him, some in dreams, by the spirit Manitou. Norval Morisot is a man in conflict, caught between Christian teaching and his Ojibwe mystical beliefs. This monologue really captures the sense of mystique the public found in Morisot. The exhibition put on by gallery owner Jack Pollock was a major success. All Morisot's paintings sold out. Overnight, he went from relatively unknown to a celebrity artist. When Morisot had his first commercial gallery exhibition at Pollock Gallery in Toronto, and everything sold out. And the art world was kind of taken aback, <laughs> was surprised, because prior to that point, the only interaction with Indigenous folk in terms of art making had been through an anthropological or an ethnographic lens. While the show was a turning point for Morisot professionally, what no one knew at the time is that it was also a turning point for Indigenous arts and culture. For nearly 70 years, the Indian Act had restricted Indigenous ceremonies and customs, including the Sundance and powwows. The ceremonies were seen as a barrier to assimilation. People were arrested for performing them, and their ceremonial items were confiscated and often sold into private collections. 
At the time of Morisot's show, it had been just 11 years since the Indian Act was amended to remove those restrictions. At first, people were very afraid of that, right? Like, what would happen? And, you know, he persisted because he knew there would be generations of Native kids who don't have access to that, and they are going to come to it through art. And he was right about that. Despite the breakthrough success of Morisot's work, his exposure was bittersweet. He couldn't escape the stereotypes. He was cast as a painter of legends in keeping with the story of the savage Indian. His art and personal life were publicly scrutinized like no other. Both were often critiqued as primitive. So this notion that museums were there to save the material culture of Indigenous folks who were going to disappear or die. And then the remaining culture that's left is considered to be inauthentic because it's after contact. It's been contaminated by colonization and interaction with the more white nations that came after. So I think 1962 is a good turning point because they have to think two things. The fact that Indigenous folks could use new materials to tell contemporary stories. They weren't stuck in the past anymore. And to think that that culture is authentic. Morisot was on the forefront of a new development in Indigenous art. His work was sophisticated and progressive. Morisot built upon the style of Indigenous pictographs, one of the oldest and most widespread artistic traditions found in Canada. His work is characterized by inky black lines surrounding bright, vibrant colors. It looks almost like stained glass. It uses X-ray vision to show you deep inside animals, and it also depicts ceremonies. Its lines are interconnected, indicating sacred power and the roots of life. He developed his own artistic vocabulary and created a new indigenous art movement known as the Woodland School of Art. It's become one of the most recognizable styles of indigenous art in Canada. Here's Carmen Robertson again. So the Woodland School of Art is Morisot's gift to indigenous art. And he inspired a whole group, in fact, generations of indigenous artists to take up this way of thinking about art and creating art. But despite all this, indigenous stereotypes became firmly attached to Morisot and followed him around the rest of his career. You get a clear sense from this interview with Morisot on the night of his breakthrough exhibition. Would you be a, a, a medicine man, do you think? Well, no, I, I'm speaking in front of the public. I wouldn't like the Indians to think I am a medicine man. I might be getting really? prescriptions <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. See? Well, you do, though. You do find herbs for your people when you're in the woods, don't you? Well, I heard you need a license, too, to practice <laughs> the, But, but you, you might possibly be a, what they call a medicine man. I might, might be. That whole discourse around primitivism and modern art was something that weighed Morisot down because when art critics or people in the art world viewed Morisot, they didn't see him as an individual. Robertson says that while Morisot was simply trying to express himself, audiences couldn't see past that exotic other. 
They saw him as part of, you know, a painter of legends, these sort of primitive ways of thinking about art and and sort of magical ways at the same time, exotic ways, rather than just being who he was. And that complicated who he was. A number of allies, people who, who meant well, were pushing him in different directions to paint in certain ways, to paint on Hyde, because that would be closer to this primitivist discourse that people would want to buy, things like that. Despite being referred to as primitive by some, Morisot was given the nickname Picasso of the North, which is still being used to this day. Robertson considers both framings to be of a colonial view. Either he's primitive, or he's the secondhand version of a European artist. So you mentioned Picasso of the North, and and that is a marketing ploy that was used uh, from the early 1960s onward. It wasn't an idea he came up with, but it really has stuck, and people kind of misunderstand what Morisot did because of that. First of all, comparing him to a uh, European master, uh, you know, that's flattering in some ways, but what he was doing on his own didn't need that propping up. Morisot had a charismatic, larger-than-life personality and complex identities. And he lived out loud, which wasn't always to the taste of the Canadian public. He became a controversial figure, which often overshadowed his work. For example, Morisot was Two-Spirit, which was reflected in some of the erotic works that he did back in the 70s and 80s. In his work, Indian Erotic Fantasy, in 1982, Morisot depicts two male figures making love. Their skin tones contrast with each other, but their love is apparent, as the figure on the left reaches across to lay his hand on the other's heart. Morisot produced many erotic works, but most are in private collections and have never been shown publicly. He was known for his tongue-in-cheek humor, and Morisot liked to throw traditional English tea parties while still challenging colonization. It's almost like he started commenting on cultural appropriation before most people even knew what it was. Morisot was larger than life and didn't fit neatly into any kind of box. But the Canadian art market and media pushed him into the role of token Indian, a stand-in for all Indigenous peoples, another cog in the colonial myth-making machine. He battled alcoholism throughout his life which journalists overemphasized. There was a media frenzy focused on his personal struggles. In 1973, he was arrested for public drunkenness. He spent six months in jail in Kenora. Six months. While the media focused on his troubles, he was given an extra cell to paint in. His time in jail became one of the most prolific of his career. At times, Morisot tried to take control of his own story. Like in a 1975 interview he did with the Toronto Star, Morisot said, I am tired of hearing about Norval the drunkard. Norval with the hangover. Norval in jail. Norval torn apart by his allegiances both to Christianity and the old Indian ways. They speak about this tortured man. I'm not tortured. I've had a marvelous time in my life. The myths around Morisot overwhelm and really shift what he was trying to do. But through that all, he used his art as the vehicle to to stay true to who he was. So if I am in here in this world to deliver any messages, I would want to be a preacher. 
I would want to be a painter to show people that there is there's something else. This is a better communication which you could communicate with a whole set of multitudes of people. It goes, it breaks all barriers. But others continued to box Morso into certain tropes, ranging from romanticization to scorn. Norval the mystic, the noble savage, the shaman, the drunken Indian. He wasn't treated as a contemporary human being. These colonial views had little to do with Morso as an artist or an individual. To some extent, Morisot adopted a if-you-can't-beat-him-join-him approach. He would employ some crafty marketing by doing things like playing up his shaman persona, which fed the colonial fantasies and sold paintings. Here's Carmen again. Although it was difficult for him in the media because there were some really strong stereotypical tropes that were applied to all Indigenous peoples, and and he was kept into this sort of very narrow categorization. He continued to push his ideas in the media, but they were mostly disregarded. But the the only place he was able to fully realize who he was as an Indigenous man in the 1960s and 70s, and then on through until he passed on in 2007, was really through his art. That was his vehicle to really grab that agency. Do you think a non-Indigenous artist in the same place and time would have been focused on in that way? I do not. Let's take Picasso as an example. You know, he uh, he was fathering children from very young women. He was a partier, but he was considered to be a maverick for that. So judged on a very different scale. What Morisot was doing is even though he was struggling with his demons in many ways, as uh, you know, has been written about in the press so often, he was also actively making change. So creating paintings like Man Changing into Thunderbird, which is at the Art Gallery of Ontario and such a phenomenal piece. And those are teachings, those are gifts that he's given. So even though he struggled with trauma, he continued to push himself and his art and make space for young artists to make even more change as they are today. Completed in 1978, Man Changing into Thunderbird is a masterpiece. It's a six-sequence panel that functions like a visual autobiography. I recently saw it for the first time. Having been immersed in Morisot for this episode, I had been meaning to go to the AGO to see it. Then one evening I was attending a gala honoring Robert Houle at the grand opening of his exhibition called Red is Beautiful. I was late and impatiently speed walking up and down stairs, room to room, trying to find the gala and not realizing I was entirely alone with all of this amazing art. Then, as I stepped into the threshold of the main indigenous gallery space, there it was. Man changing into Thunderbird. And I was alone with it. Suddenly I was hit with strong feelings of joy and pride. My arm hair stood on end. I had goosebumps and felt almost teary. It was the centerpiece of the room in the entire indigenous gallery. It was so vibrantly colorful and massive, covering an entire wall. 
This was easily one of my most memorable moments of witnessing an artwork. Let's talk about what's considered to be Morisot's masterpiece, Man Changing into Thunderbird. And Morisot painted this work in 1978. And as the six panels move along, he's telling a visual story of himself beginning as an apprentice, learning from his grandfather, and moving to becoming Copper Thunderbird who he saw himself as, as an artist. So over the course of each of those panels, we see him moving from uh, an image of a young indigenous man uh, within a regalia setting. And every piece you see him becoming a Thunderbird. So first of all, one wing emerges then a, a, a claw from the foot emerges, then a second wing emerges. His headdress changes to become the headdress of a shaman. And as he moves from that first panel to the sixth panel, he uses color to help show that transformation. So by the end, the background of that painting is this intense orangey copper color, you know, the very spiritual gift of the earth, copper. And Thunderbird, the very powerful uh, Manitou or God, and that's his gifted name. So he is the copper Thunderbird and he uses that series of paintings to show his transformation into a, a fully fledged artist a fully-fledged man as part of this movement in Canada. Just five years after his first gallery exhibition that launched him into the spotlight, Morisot was invited along with a group of artists to create the Indians of Canada Pavilion for Expo 67 in Montreal. The pavilion presented works of Indigenous arts and culture alongside historical and political commentary concerning the past and present issues facing the Indigenous peoples of Canada. While organizers consulted with Indigenous advisors, the Department of Indian Affairs exercised strict control over the narrative that was being presented. Morisot painted a large-scale exterior mural showing bear cubs and a human child being nursed by Mother Earth but the organizers were uncomfortable with the nursing and tried to get Morisot to change it. Morisot quit, rather than compromise his vision and integrity. I think that if Morisot hadn't stepped away, it would have taken much longer for Indigenous artists to find their own voice. Even though Morisot's original mural ended up being censored, the exhibition turned out to be provocative and controversial for the public and the federal government alike. It exposed Canadians to the realities of Indigenous life. I think that his work is integral to Indigenous sovereignty because from his earliest works in the late 1950s on through, there's a thread that runs that he is providing teachings. He's providing ways of thinking about Indigenous stories through his art and as we said at Expo 67, he was unwilling throughout his career to bend and step away from that. Morisot continued to challenge the status quo throughout his career. 
and he had this very um, strong vision of supporting other indigenous peoples to the point where he did a series of very political works in the 1970s, land, for example, or land rights, which is now in the McMichael collection, which challenges two different ways of seeing land. And, you know, that's now today we talk about that quite often in the media or in art or in other cultural areas. But Morisot was painting this in the mid-1970s. And so that notion of what land sovereignty means, what that means for everything to be interconnected, is integral to understanding his art. So, yeah, I see uh, sovereignty uh, throughout his uh, art-making career. While Morisot opened the door for many people, other Indigenous artists felt societal pressure to fit into the Morisot box. Their work wasn't considered Indigenous enough if it didn't adopt the Woodland School style, something we'll get into in later episodes. Despite that, Morisot's work has inspired countless people and reflects issues that continue to this day. He's talking about land, he's talking about sovereignty, he's a trailblazer, he's an activist, and his art was important in the 60s, it was important in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but it's also topics that are every bit as important and resonating today. And so that, I think, is the gift that Morisot is opening up so that we can understand that the past, the present, and the future are all part of what Morisot is has gifted to us through his art. And it keeps on uh, expanding new horizons. Thank you for listening to The Art of Sovereignty. I hope you keep listening. And if you do, I hope you take these artists' names, celebrate their work, read about their lives, and share their stories. With knowledge comes opportunity. To see the images referred to in this episode, check out the link in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzie Michelin and Katie O'Connor. Edited by Chris Beaver with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Music by Bedtracks. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Powerplant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush in the Art Gallery of Ontario.